So let's hear God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 37, verses 1 to 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. This is God's word. This weekend marks one year since our last Sunday morning worship service in the James Chapel, our normal meeting space. Uh, At the end of that service, we did not shake hands and hug and say goodbye and say, you know, we hope to see you in a year or two. Uh, We didn't exchange information for how we can stay in touch. We did not know that it was going to be the last time we met together. Now, uh, you know, from January and February, it was clear from the reports that COVID was an increasing problem. Um, But, but the information was coming in uh, at at such a way that we didn't know how to plan. And in fact, uh, one odd bit about the story is, is next weekend, uh, one year ago, we were meant to have what would have been the first in-person joint service with Uptown Community Church. So, uh, Late that week, Uptown, who was hosting, decided uh, we can't meet. (laughs) And so we didn't know. And so our attitude at the time was we're going to have these two months that we need to figure out how to get through it. And here we are, 52 weeks later, still not clear on when will we resume something that looks like the old normal. And so it's been a hard year in many specific ways. Numerous people in our church have had COVID. I know of three that currently do. Um, uh, Most people who have had it haven't had it too bad, but some did over the course of this year. Some really suffered. We've had uh, members of our congregation lose parents, siblings, friends, neighbors, coworkers, loved ones. It's been uh, a period where some people have been exceedingly overburdened with the amount of work that they've had to do. Some people have been completely isolated. Uh, some people had minor issues that became major issues. So this has been a hard, difficult year. Over the course of the year, I've also heard lots of little stories and some big stories where good things happen, where somebody sees something hopeful or something Uh, Good happens, maybe not directly related to COVID, but there's been a couple of things that actually all of the various changes have led to certain realizations, certain life change decisions that are good. Uh, Certain reconciliations have happened. And so what is the nature of this period? Is it a bad period or is it a good period? (laughs) 
And there's something about us that it, that it needs to be one or the other. And I think uh, for the sake of simplicity, we're experiencing it as it, it's both. So good things happened, but that doesn't mean that this is a good period and terrible things happened. Do we want to say it's a terrible period with good things happening? I don't know. You can, you can uh, sum it up and characterize it as you like. But this period has intensified a reality that's been part of the world since the beginning, which is um, the world is good, but, but there's brokenness. And sometimes the goodness is more thorough and sometimes the brokenness is more thorough. But often they're unfolding in some combination, in some parallel. And one of the things that we see in the Bible is this realistic history of this world and its miseries and its suffering and its unfairness. But God at work, sometimes obviously directly, sometimes behind the scenes, but moving history towards a place that's ultimately good. And that's important to know that, that, that history has redemption, um, not because that means that our current sufferings are not a big deal or that it doesn't matter or that we're wrong to be discouraged or to say this thing that happened is evil, but, but it's much more complex. And yet, yet the Bible gives us a hopeful narrative by which to frame things so that we can engage the problems of the world honestly, we could face them without losing hope because the ultimate picture in the Bible is very hopeful. Now, today we're starting a sermon series looking at Joseph, the last section of the book of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50. So it's a long section. The series is going to take us into the summer, but a helpful narrative, a helpful story for us to be looking at because not all stories in the Bible are as developed as this particular story. And not all stories in the Bible reach this wonderful resolution that this story does. And it's really a paradigm kind of story. It, it, it creates a picture of, a, of, of the whole of scripture in some ways that I hope we'll find out over the upcoming months. But what's wonderful about the story is it's filled with real life kind of problems and conflicts and disappointments. And yet God sometimes isn't seen working but he brings it to an end where all of the complex details that seem impossible, that we can't make sense of, come to a coherent, redemptive end where we see the wisdom of God. And perhaps one of the most famous lines in all of scripture is the words that Joseph speaks at the end of this story to his brothers who don't know how to read the situation. They're now before Joseph, and they think he's going to extract vengeance. You'll hear a little bit today about why um, they might think that. But instead, he, he says, this is the line, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I think one of the reasons that that verse is so memorable is because things are so good at the end. It's not simply that what their suffering went through was part of preserving them, that, that now they've been saved. They don't starve in this famine. But more than that, they now have prosperity. They've come to a new place where they will remain for, as a people for more than 400 years. This, this story is actually crucial in the life of this people. And the end is so wonderful that you could see when the brothers come, Joseph saying, hey, it's no big deal. It, you know, look how great things are now. But that's not what he says, nor is there a passive aggressive tone in there, nor is there uh, vengeance. But, but there's been maturing and development in Joseph and his character. And in this story, and at the end, he's able to speak the truth and he's able to say, you meant evil. And so he's being clear, he's being truthful. What happened is not good. But somehow God worked through our mess, and he meant all of this to lead us towards some end that is good. So was this good? Well, yes, 
but actually we could be honest. It, we felt it was evil <laughs> and we don't have to, to parse out what was good and what was evil, but we could recognize that from our end, our intentions were not good. We made lots of mistakes, but, but God has brought us to a place. And that story is a bit of a picture of, of within the Bible, of the Bible as a whole, that the promise, uh, one of the reasons we're told, we're urged, come and follow Jesus. He's leading us somewhere. Well, where's he leading us? Well, it's this wandering, meandering, confusing path. We don't always know what he's doing. We, we lose confidence. We get confused. We get disappointed. But we're told is trust him at the end. He's bringing us to a place where things will resolve so that you will look back and see the wisdom of God. And you will also be able to say, but that was hard and that was evil and I failed and I'm disappointed. All of those things remain true. And yet they're not trivialized, but they're redeemed. That the confidence in the present is not simply if we get through this life, if one day there's some other future reality, but we're connected to a story that that future reality helps us understand now in the present reality. We're able to name evil where it is, but we don't lose hope because we recognize somehow God will redeem this. <laughs> And it won't be, then therefore I have to say that this was good, although it might be, we're surprised. Wow, this thing that I hated, it was good. It was for my benefit. At the end, there may be things that we say, I still don't understand how that was good, but, but God used that piece of my story or the world's story in order to bring about redemption. And so we're looking at Joseph, but I'm calling the series the Joseph Stories, not because it's a series of stories about Joseph, although it is. But it really is one coherent narrative, this one picture that holds together about the life of Joseph from the time he's 17 till his death. The reason I'm calling it stories plural is because it's not just about Joseph. And so the focus is on Joseph. But the bigger story in Genesis that this, this is completing is the story of Jacob. And so we see that even in the first two verses. These are the generations of Jacob. Jacob, uh, there's been a lot of development in him and his life. And now we're seeing the end of his life unfold throughout these chapters. It's also a story about Joseph's brothers. All of them, um, some of them, what you will read about Reuben and about Simeon. But in terms of the bigger story, we read about Judah. And, and Judah and Joseph, in this story, it's not just in the story, but, the, but through the whole of the Bible, uh, Judah and Joseph and their descendants, there, there's an ongoing back and forth that we see here that keeps going. Benjamin in this story. Also, once you get to Judges, 1 Samuel, the role of Benjamin, this story is a story about Joseph. And it's a completed story of, of brokenness and redemption. But it's also a story that's tied into the bigger story of scripture. And as we look at it, we're going to gain insights into the story of Jacob and Judah and Benjamin and Jesus and us. So where I want to begin today in looking at Joseph is we're going to note two things about him as we meet this character with, with more detail. And the first is that he's loved and hated. So this, this is the first section, that Joseph is loved and hated. And I'm highlighting that because as we meet him, we find not simply that he's loved and hated, because really that's true of everyone to some degree. But Joseph, uh, the narrative sets it up that he's loved more than the average person but he's also hated more than the average person. His brothers hate him so much that they literally plot to kill him. So it's not simply that they resent him, but they intend to murder him. He's hated that much. But his father loves him so much that there's this, probably one of the most famous images of the Bible, this colored robe. And so if you're a Broadway fan, you picture it as a rainbowy technicolor dream coat. 
maybe uh, some of you are just thinking Mary Meko. Uh, what does it mean that he has this colored robe? What did it look like? Uh, some translators would say it's not really a colored robe. It's a robe with long sleeves. We're not meant so much to, to picture the image, but, but to know that the image pictures privilege, um, dignity. The father loves him, gives him something valuable. And strangely enough, in this small family, it, it marks him off almost having a royal um, something to him that winds up being realized later in the story, even if his robe is stripped from him and destroyed. Um, so here you have somebody who's loved by his father. Now, isn't that one of the greatest things you can imagine? Isn't love the greatest thing in the love of a parent for a child? So verse three, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. Isn't that great that he, it's not just that he loves him, but he loves him more. Can you ever get too much love? There's something you notice that, that, you know, in the Bible, when it talks about God's love, the more there is, the better everything. But human love always has some corruption in it. So how could it be a problematic that he had more love for one person? And yet, if you understand how family dynamics work, I don't know about a family of 12 kids, but when one parent clearly loves one more than the others, it's not that the family has an overflow of more love, but it's a seed for resentment. And so that's at least one factor in the brothers hating Joseph. So in verse four, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. So it's not just that they have resentment in their heart. Um, interesting the way it's translated, not that they would not speak, but it's almost there's an impossibility. This is an ominous story. It's setting things up to signal to a reader, things are not going to go well. They could not speak peace to him and they hate him. Now they hate him because he tells on them. We don't know the details of it, but, but he goes back and he's younger. He's 17. They're older than him. He reports something that they've done. Uh, we don't know what it was or why or who is in the right, but nobody likes a rat. So they resent him. And so we get the picture that maybe Joseph being loved so much, it's not simply bad for the brothers who resent, um, but maybe he's a bit spoiled, a, a little bit proud. And so his brothers resent that. Then he has these dreams and the way he tells the dreams uh, seems to give an impression that maybe the one who's loved too much, the love hasn't shaped him from the best. We don't know. I can't, we can't psychologize Joseph, but you could, you could get these narrative hints about the great love for Joseph, but it's not an equal love in the family. The great hatred of the brothers and it sets it up so that in Joseph's actions, verses five and eight, when he tells the dream, they hate him even more. How could that be? They hated him so much they couldn't speak peace to him, but now they hate him even more. This story is not going to go well. And so one of the things that's worth noting is as we meet Joseph, as we meet his brothers, is there is a story prior to this. You could read it, go back and start in Genesis 12 and read about Abraham, then read about Isaac, and then read about Jacob. You could do that in the next couple of weeks. But we meet Joseph and his brothers. That's, it's the start of our story. But there's a background. There's a history. It's not simply that we have resentful brothers. Um, but verse 3, when it says that, Joseph loved, uh, that Jacob loved Joseph so much, it's because he was the son of his old age. Now, there were uh, 10 brothers, and then Joseph was born the 11th. And that seems to be the end of it. And so, so uh, there's a complex story of how Jacob waited and waited, um, and Joseph is finally born. The interesting thing is later in the story, if you read the earlier part of Genesis or the, the middle part earlier to us, is there's a 12th child born to Rachel Benjamin. So, so if it was simply 
that that rather than being the firstborn, the lastborn, the one in my oldest age is, was valuable, then it would be Benjamin. So, so Jacob loving him because he's the son of his old age couldn't be that, that Joseph was the youngest. We, we know it wasn't that. And th- there's a story behind it. And understanding the complexity of the story leading up to this moment and the complexity as it goes along helps us understand more how impossible the situation is for them to get it right. We, we understand why this narrative gets worse before it gets better. But also to marvel at the wisdom of God who's able to take all of these broken pieces and weave it together towards some redemptive end. But the story is broken and has a broken past. And so there's a simple story. Jacob falls in love with a woman. There's a romance story. He falls in love with Rachel and he wants to have life with her. He wants to marry her and have children. And she has Joseph. And that's the story. Jacob falls in love with Rachel, has Joseph, and he loves his son. That is a good, simple story. But you go back and you find that that's the story, but it gets complicated. So you have Jacob where there's character development. When you meet Jacob, not a good guy. Sometimes, sometimes when you read the Bible, the accounts are so short that you just get your impression by various stories and you forget that over time, Jacob changes and he grows, but we meet him when, he's, when he uh, takes advantage of his brother Esau and then swindles from his father Esau's, Esau's blessing and has to flee. Not an upright, noble guy, not an admirable guy, but, but he grows through his suffering, through real challenges, through being humbled, through God's visitation and kindness in Jacob's story, if you read that. But he flees um, for his life, and, and he goes to one of his relatives, Laban, and he meets Rachel. He sees her, and because it's an ancient document, it's not written like a modern story, but, but we would we would have the violin music playing in the background when he sees her. It's love at first sight. And so Laban says to Jacob, why don't you come and work for me and, and spend seven years with us? And, and what, what do you hope to get from these seven years? And, and Jacob hopes to marry Rachel. And the agreement up front is that, that if you come and serve for seven years at the end, won't this be wonderful? You'll marry Rachel. And he does it. Sounds for modern people. Wow, that's this is different than ROTC, right? I'm going to have to work for seven years to get married to this. How does that even work? Those are questions. Glad we're not in the story of Jacob today. Um, the end of the seven years come, the wedding comes, the longing. You can imagine how much he loved her, how this is going to go. And then something happens. <laughs> Jacob reaps what he has sown. Jacob, who has swindled and who has deceived and tricked Laban, uh, disguises his daughter Leah, the older daughter, and sends him in, and he does not know that he consummates his marriage with the wrong woman. And now you have a complex story, these four characters, Rachel, Leah, Laban, Jacob. And Laban makes excuses. Look, in our culture, we don't do this. The, the older one gets married first. I had to. Work another, another seven years. So this will be 14 years, and you will get Rachel. And so you can imagine Rachel, how she feels. You can imagine Jacob, how he feels. You really have to imagine how Leah feels, poor Leah in all of this. But what we don't need to imagine is how God looks at this, because in the narrative, God looks at Leah with compassion. The one who's described as maybe less attractive, the one who has to be married through trickery, uh, human complexity. God looks with compassion on Leah. And in an ancient culture, how do you bless her? (laughs) He blesses her with children. So she has Reuben and she has Simeon, and she has Levi, and she has Judah. And there, God is showing kindness to Leah, but this complex story, Rachel, is not having children. 
And this is hard for Jacob. This is hard for Rachel. And Rachel resents Leah. And so she takes her servant, Bilhah. Jacob, uh, we want children. We can't have them naturally through me, have them through her. So Dan is born. Uh, then Naphtali. Leah is watching. And Leah starts to become resentful as well. So he, she takes her maid, Zilpah. And so Issachar and Zebulun are born. Now there are six kids, uh, 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 Talia, uh, four to the concubines, and then Rachel gets pregnant. Can you imagine that? 14 years waiting to marry her. Years of these children being born. And what he wanted was to marry Rachel and to have children. And she conceives and has Joseph. Things have changed. Now Rachel is able to conceive. So you have these 11 brothers and the story unfolds. But then Rachel conceives again. Isn't this even more wonderful? Later on in the narrative, Rachel conceives and has son to the 12, has, has, uh, gives birth to the 12th child, Benjamin. As she's giving birth, she dies. So this was Jacob's dream to marry Rachel and have children. Uh, she dies giving birth to their son, Benjamin. So the firstborn with Rachel is Joseph, but he's not the firstborn, and Reuben has not been a good firstborn, and Levi and Simeon haven't. We're going to find that Joseph does wind up an appropriate next in the line. But we come into this story, and it's a story that we quickly assess. Look at Jacob, the terrible father who shows favoritism to his kids. Look at Joseph, the arrogant boy. All of that's true, and sometimes you just want to be quick assessing it. But there's a complex story when, when Jacob loves Joseph. It's not simply that he's a bad father. It is, it's not good fathering. But he, he wanted something. He, he wanted to marry Rachel. He wanted to have children. And Joseph symbolizes everything that he wanted, but, but God had a different story. And we know that God's favoritism to Leah was not simply that she would have children, but that her child would be the, the, the one that the great King David comes from, that the Messiah, Jesus, comes from. God's redemptive story through Leah reaches a wonderful climax but here's Jacob knowing none of that and he just knows that he wants to have children with Rachel who's now dead and I don't know how that would affect him how he looked at Benjamin but he looked at Joseph and he loved him and I'm, I'm beginning here because um, this story is so complex that there's no easy answer you know at this point we, we meet the beginning of the story where the brothers can't speak peace to him where does that go when they're jealous you know, again, from, from a brother's perspective, they may have been able to say, our father loves us and he loves Joseph more. Isn't more love better? But, but that's not the way things work. And, and we're willing to share things and, and whatever it is, whether it's love or resources, hey, if everybody gets, we're fine. But when one person has more than us, even if I've got plenty, it does something in this broken world. There's something wrong with Jacob's love that it, it, was, it was an unequal love. And the brothers... I think if we sat down with them, we would say, hey, take it easy on Joseph. Go, go talk to your father, Jacob. There's a problem with him. <laughs> um, you don't want to encourage somebody to hate their father, but you might say, you know, you wouldn't plan to kill your father. So why don't you fix this? But they do plan to kill Joseph and to destroy that robe and to bring pain to their father. That's how the story unfolds. And I'm beginning here because the story is set up as an impossible <laughs> story. What could they possibly do? How do they fix this? They cannot speak peace. And so they don't. And the story goes from bad to worse. And Joseph himself is the victim of his brothers, 
of a false accusation of being forgotten unfairly in prison. And yet in the midst of it, it's not that his suffering is small. He sits two years in prison, falsely accused. This is a very real, long, tragic story. But over time, God works and is with him and blesses him and, and brings these very complex pieces that we could only make worse and ties them up at the end that Joseph can say, look at what God meant for good, not simply for our family, but now our descendants, 400 years in this land, having prosperity, all of these things doesn't justify it, but it does redeem it. And we live in real time where we have these complicated threads and we don't know how they're going to tie up and we can't fix them. And we, we have areas of our lives that are still broken and we have people in our lives that uh, where, where we need reconciliation and on our own, it's too complex. We can't fix it all. And so we go into the world, complicated individuals uh, in a complicated society. And instead of taking whatever love there is and magnifying it, we wind up like these brothers. You know, love is love good. Yes. Is hate good? Well, actually, sometimes, normally it's not, but if you hate what's evil, that's good. And love is good, but if love is corrupted, if, if you're obsessed with somebody, it feels like love, but it's not. So, so we want a lot of love. We don't want a lot of hate, but there's jealousy here. Jealousy comes in and will corrupt hate to make sure it's unjust and it destroys love. And what happens is in every life, in every family, in every story, love is never perfect. Hatred arises. Jealousy grips us. And we can't speak peace. We can't bring peace. And we need to know this because we go into the world called to be peacemakers. And we have our own hearts to deal with. We have our own histories to deal with. But we don't always appreciate that we have the complex world to deal with. This week, I heard a story. Uh, one of the, the organizations Manual partners with is the Bowery Mission because they have a women's center in Harlem. And we provide meals for them and we, we normally show up and cook for them. And during COVID, we've, we've been uh, ordering the food for them. And on Valentine's Day, we sent chocolates to the, to the women and the residents and some notes. And so we still partner with them. This week, the Bowery, is it, which is a large uh, historic organization in our city, had a ministry leaders meeting. And they, they had a woman uh, who was a graduate of Bowery Women's Center share a story over a video. And I recognized the woman. I don't recall talking with her, but I recognized her having been a resident of the Bowery Women's Center. And she shared her story. It was a story that had a tragedy in it that, that left her already, she was already vulnerable. The tragedy pressed those vulnerabilities so that she did not have the capacity mentally to handle them and wound up with severe enough mental health issues she needed to be hospitalized. When she came out of the hospital, she had nowhere to go. She was homeless, no one to take her in, no relationships, no money. So a social worker connects her with the Bowery Women's Center and she goes, and I don't recall, but typically they spend about a year there. Uh, she talked about spiritual nurture and kindness. She talked about being fed and helped. She talked about job training and encouragement. She talked about having a space to heal. And then the climax of the story is her going into her workplace. She's now works reception in a medical-ish kind of practice and she's working. And she has her own place and she's stabled. And it's a redemptive story of somebody who was broken, who's now healed. But, you know, with redemptive stories, if you went back to her, even in the midst of her tragedy, I'm sure there were still good things about her, good experiences, good attributes, but she was at her lowest. And you come to her now, this wonderful picture that it seems like everything's fixed permanently, but she's still a human being. I'm sure she still has her bad days. I'm sure, sure she still has a lot of growing to do. And so there she is with this, this picture that says, look how she's arrived. She's working, she's thriving, she's rejoicing. But then you are a patient at that medical practice and you go in and you're waiting for her and you don't have a lot of time 
and she's the receptionist and she's handling a couple of things because there have been a couple of surprises and she's not giving you attention. And so you call her attention because the customer is always right. And you say, hey, uh, you know, I, I want to check in. And she does not respond with kindness, but gives a bit of an edge. And you sit down and you know your own complex story. And you sit down with anger. You know that last night, some guy with a Harley Davidson idled his motorcycle for 30 minutes at 3 a.m. outside your window and you didn't sleep. You know that this that morning you went to have bread and there was mold on it. And so you just had to grab a handful of almonds before rushing off to work. And you know that while you were fumbling to get your wallet out of your pocket, you saw the train go by. And it's one of those days. And now this woman owes you a certain measure of respect and she doesn't give it to you. She doesn't recognize you and your troubles and your dignity. And you sit down and you think, I'm going to go and yelp. And I'm going to say this is a great doctor, but what a terrible receptionist. And if somebody came and said to you, do you know that this woman was homeless? Uh, do you know that this woman has spent the last three weeks learning this job and is now really good at it? Do you know that she's having a tough day? Um, that story would change your perception of what happened and how you would respond to it. But, but we go into the world very aware of our own complexity and with very little awareness of the complexity of the stories around us. And so what happens is whatever love we have access to is never enough. Whatever jealousy is in us is too much and it corrupts us. And so it makes us people who are not good at speaking peace. There's love and hate right in the beginning of this story. You know, we just finished this uh, series on Ecclesiastes where there's good and evil. Uh, now in the Joseph story, we're going to see that there's love and hate, which in Genesis and the Bible is partly about choosing and rejecting. Um, human beings have stories where we are all loved and we're all hated. We all love, we all hate. But we need redemption because our love is weak enough and our hatred is strong enough that it always seems that hate is the more powerful force. The Joseph story is so remarkable because it shows that that's true. <laughs> hate is powerful, but it shows where God is at work in the midst of a story. His love still brings the complexity, not just of this one story, but, but God is doing something not just in this complex family, but Egypt, this powerful empire at this time, and the whole land because of Joseph winds up being brought through the famine because of what happens in this one broken family. And that we need to remember as we go into the world that we are people that need redemption and we're going to a world that needs redemption. And we need to be very humble about what we can do. And as we deal with ourselves and others around us, what we're told though, is if God is at work now, if God is leading this somewhere, we don't need to give in to our jealousy, our envy, our hatred, our bitterness. But there's another story that empowers us so that the love of God could win in our lives and through our lives. So here's the second thing I'm going to talk about. I want to begin just noting with when we meet Joseph, we meet love and hate. Second thing is that he's a dreamer. That's actually important in this story. I think the last couple of verses weren't read, but, uh, but the story of Joseph's dreams, uh, they wind up being very important in this narrative. And, and Joseph being a dreamer, so not in this passage, but next week, his he goes to his resentful brothers, and when they see him, they don't say, oh, that's the son who's loved by our father. They say, here comes that dreamer. So Joseph and the connection of dreams is very important in this section of the Bible. And he has two dreams. And we find that later there are another two dreams with the, the baker and this uh, wine steward of Pharaoh. And then later Pharaoh has these two dreams where, where Joseph then tells Pharaoh, well, the reason you had two different dreams, it's the same dream, but the second one makes it sure. We find that applies to these dreams as well, that he has a, a dream about his brothers 
um, in the field, these sheaves that bow down to him being the one that stands up straight. And as you do your modern dream interpretation, if you have to write a, an intro to Freud paper, that's a good story to write on. What does it mean about these 10 unloved brothers who don't stand up straight and the one brother who does? Uh, he has this dream, and, but then he has a second dream where the sun, moon, and stars bow down to him. And Joseph understands that to be, uh, uh, it, well, it's remarkable to me how, how they interpret the dream. <laughs> uh, they understand this means you're telling us that you are going to be a great person and we are going to bow down to you. They understand that and they resent it. You know, for us, we think of dreams naturalistically, which is right. I mean, uh, you know, dreams are how we, how our unconscious processes things. And, you know, if you, if, uh, if your leg is itchy, you might be having a dream about a dog biting you. Uh, we realize that there are connections there. I saw a video uh, that was sort of interesting to me. It was, it, the setting was a, a cooking show, like uh, not a cooking show, like a talk show with a cooking segment. And the guy that was going to share his recipe was sharing a recipe for what he called the dream omelet. So, so he has all the ingredients and he's going to share what the dream omelet is. But as he, as he explains the recipe, he says, the reason that I'm calling it the dream omelet is because this recipe came to me in a dream. And now he's going to show you how to make the dream omelet. So he says, first, you take your shoehorn and you scoop a quarter cup of butter and you put it in. Then you go to your medicine cabinet in the bathroom and you get your bacon. And then you take your lemon to add it. And as you cut it, you realize inside the lemon is actually a tomato. And, and this recipe is getting stranger and stranger. This recipe that came to him in a dream winds up being this very bizarre recipe. You don't want to make the dream omelet if you Google that, although you may get a laugh if you watch it. It's a, it's a bit of a spoof. What we think of a, a, as dreams is it, it's just this bizarre world where our minds process what we're experiencing. And that, I think, explains most of our dreams. But these dreams of Joseph are a bit different. It's not simply that Joseph was an arrogant kid who had th these aspirations. But, but at the beginning of the Joseph story, the ending is revealed to us, the reader. And the ending is revealed to them, but they don't, they don't know it. They don't recognize it. They don't appreciate it. One day, the brothers and the father will come and bow down to Joseph. Um, what we're told, what, what we have this picture is, you know, with God's redemptive story, what God has purposed from the beginning will happen. So he announces before any of it happening that this will happen. And so that's how we know this is a redemptive story. That's how we know at the end, Joseph is able to say, God meant all of this for good because God made clear before any of it happened where it was going. The end has been revealed from the beginning. But the end that was revealed doesn't warm their hearts. Maybe Joseph was stirred to greater arrogance. There's a lot of character development for him through his suffering. But at that moment, we don't know, but maybe Joseph felt really proud. Why did he tell the brothers this story? It doesn't seem very kind. Maybe he was emboldened to greater arrogance from his understanding. My brothers will bow down and I will get to be the greatest. And the brothers and even the father, Jacob rebukes him. Although in the last verse, verse 11, it says he remembered this. Um, this, this comes out later. It's, it's a reminder that at the beginning, God made this known. They don't see this as a charming story. They see this as, this is the kind of human coercion. You want power and you want power over us and you're going to make us kneel before you. And so this is a story that may have picked up Joseph, puffed up Joseph with pride. We don't know, but it is a story that infuriated his brothers. We know that. And yet at the end, when they come and bow down, they don't bow down in humiliation. They come and they bow down marveling that they have been saved from their famine. And that Joseph, their brother, forgives them. And so, so the picture 
given to this broken family is realized, but but not in a way that these angry brothers thought you're just an arrogant jerk and you really think we're going to bow before you. We're going to stop the dream from happening. We're going to kill you and destroy that robe. So the dream is not realized. But what we're told is the dream will be realized. Jacob, Jacob himself, years, years, thinking his son Joseph is dead. Could you imagine the brothers did that to him? The redemption at the end is not simply that I bow down to Joseph, but I bow down to Joseph, my beloved son, who I thought was dead. The end of the story is so marvelous. It's redeemed because when they come and bow down, it's not by God's design, a story of power or revenge or arrogance. It's a story at the end where Joseph is humble enough to rejoice that he's able to be reunited with his family and see his father and his brother, Benjamin, that his brothers uh, come and they're relieved. And, and we see what God has done, not in this nation, but through Joseph's work in Egypt, how he saved the region. That's how all of these impossible pieces come together. And now there's a, a passage twice in the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, Romans 14, Philippians 2, referring to Isaiah, every knee in heaven and earth will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told that there is an end, a redemptive end, when there's somebody who is like Joseph. His story is similar because Jesus, when he's baptized, a voice from the heaven said, this is my son whom I love. Wow, isn't it wonderful to have somebody loved by God in our midst? Well, that's not what his brothers thought. His brothers hated him and they plotted to kill him. And they thought by killing him, they could do away with this whole dream and this whole promise. And so they send him to the cross but what they meant for evil, Peter tells us as he preaches in Acts 2 and 4, God meant for good. Not only that he would vindicate his own son, but through the rejection of his son by the bitter, resentful people. Um, by the, uh, the, the Roman governor who had a dream. There's not many dreams in the Bible. There's another dream warning him not to do it, uh, warning his wife not to crucify him. Yet they do it. They conspire together for evil. And then God vindicates Jesus. And we're told at the end of the ages, every knee will bow down. Now that sounds threatening, doesn't it? You will become a Christian whether you like it or not. You will bow before the master. What we're told is right now, we don't understand the thorough goodness of God and the wisdom of how he's working in our broken hearts, our unimaginative minds, and our crazy world. We are told that when we bow before him, it's not going to be because we've been overpowered but it's going to be in worship and praise. And that redemptive story then changes our experience now to say, if God is meaning all things ultimately for good, well, then it's not that this thing happening is good, or it's not that I don't need to fix it, or it's not that I need to say it was no big deal. But somehow my life that I can't get together and our relationships that we can't fix and our world that is making slow and little progress and reverts back the wrong way. Somehow God is working in these details. Mm -hmm. And at the end, we will see both that we were foolish not to trust him and listen to him, but we will see the unique wisdom of his ways as we bow, not in defeat, but if we're willing to hear the gracious invitation to bow now, to remember that Jesus was sent in love, rejected because of our folly, but in the father's love, that there's a redemptive story that all of us are invited into. He will take the details of your broken past and your messy present and your complicated future on earth. And he will work them into this greater plan that ends with resurrection and worship and the renewal of all things. And that uh, is essential. And so um, 
you know, this works itself into our lives in ways. An example of this comes from a guy named Jerry Sitzer uh, through a book that he wrote called A Grace Disguised. It's a book I read with great interest because he deals with, with hard problems. And how do we deal with this messy world, with tragedy? How do you make sense of it? And he grapples theologically. And, and what I like about the book, it's not that I necessarily agree with everything or, or he doesn't answer every question, but there's an honest, mature grappling with hard issues about tragedy, but it's not just theoretical. He's not doing it as a PhD thesis. He is a professor somewhere, but he's, he's processing his own, the, his own tragedy theologically. So he's married. He has four kids. And apparently in his own story, there were some conception issues. And finally, he has these four kids. And he's in what I imagine was a minivan, some vehicle with his wife, his children, his mother-in-law, and a drunk driver hits them. In that accident, his mother-in-law, his wife, one daughter die. So now you have three generations of, of females wiped out and you have a single father with three kids and he's a Christian and he's trying to make sense of what happened. And, and the book is his grappling with how does he pick up the pieces of his life? How does he make sense of it? How does he hope in God? And he chooses consistently to hope that God is a redeemer and God is good even though he calls it a grace disguise. That's the title of the book because grace was there, but he's honest. He didn't see it. So I read the book with great interest because he really tells the story well. He really grapples honestly. I, I valued the book so much, but as a reader, I found myself wondering, is he, too, is he too close to this? Is he trying to make sense of it? Is he trying to be positive? Is he looking, is he grasping for something hopeful? So he came out with another book 20 years later called The Grace Revealed. And I, 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 don't, I don't remember it being as good of a book. If you were to read one of the two, and I'm not here as a book recommendation, but Grace Disguised, I think is a good book. What I liked about Grace Revealed is the question I had, which is, well, well is this hope that he's grasping for going to stick with him and make a difference in his life? 20 years later, he writes a Grace Revealed, and he chimes in on that thread. And, and what was encouraging to me is, yes, all of that stuff he talked about as he was processing it is true. Um, he saw actually more of it. He was right to hold to God and to believe in the gospel and to hold to God's goodness and to trust that in the midst of this evil, he would see God's kindness and God would do redemptive things. And he doesn't try to explain, excuse anything. And so I'm going to read to you two separate quotes from A Grace Reveal, the later book, The 20-Year Reflection. He says, in the months and years following the accident, I realized that the tragedy itself, however catastrophic, could actually play less a significant role than what God could do with it and how I would respond to it. So he's not saying the event, he's saying the nature of it being tragic would play less of a role than what God could do with it. And key in his book is how I would respond to it. That's what he's trying to encourage us is to respond, looking to the redeemer and hope. Would it cause downward spiral of destruction or would it illumine and illustrate a story of grace and redemption? I chose to believe it would tell a redemptive story, trusting that God was still God, sovereign, and wise and good, however miserable I felt and distant God seemed to be. See, that's his honest story. That's his honest experience. Here's the second quote from later on in the book. When I turned my gaze forward and peered into the future some 20 years ago, I could see nothing. But darkness and nothing but anguish. I believed that there was grace available to me but it was grace disguised, sorry. It was grace disguised by sorrow, pain, and mystery of tragedy and suffering. 
When I look back now and reflect on the last 20 years, I see grace revealed, discovered, experienced, made abundantly evident by the forces that have shaped my, really our story. It's a story of a sapling being gradually formed into a weathered and beautiful tree. He looks back and he doesn't say, it was great. It worked out better. My second wife was even better than my first. That's not his story. His story is I couldn't see anything in the darkness. I couldn't make sense of anything, but I chose to hope in the Redeemer. And I look back and that was the right thing to do. That God brought me through it and he used me to bear witness to his grace to others. And he used it to, to bring grace into our family. And he doesn't have an answer for everything, but he's a witness to hoping in the Redeemer. And so the Joseph story and the Jerry Sitzer story is the story of the Christian. Those who look to the Redeemer, Jesus, who was despised and rejected, though he was loved, but was raised and lifted up. And we will bow before him as his people, as forgiven, reconciled brothers and sisters. And that's why we're urged believe in him. Don't believe another story. The other stories that promise to redeem your life will fail you. They will disappoint you. They will increase your hate and destroy your love. But we're told as you look at the threads of your life, it's not that every thread is going to work out well. And that's the, the complex personalities we have. There are multiple stories. You know, there's a, there's a professional story in many of your lives. And that story may be a failing story. The redemptive story is not at the end. You're going to wind up being the greatest in your field. Real life is maybe, maybe your career story will not end well. And there's a relational story, and maybe that won't end well. And your romantic story may not end well, or your athletic aspiration story may not end well, or your health story may not end well, or your hobby story may not end well, or your aspiration to live in a certain place may not end well, any of these things. But, but what happens is we could have a lot of things going well. We have a great family and uh, you know we're healthy, but because we're banking on our career being the redemptive story, when that story is failing, everything is failing. That's it. The whole of our lives, what is happening? And, and we don't see that God may be redeeming something. He may be sparing us some trouble or God may be working in some way we don't know. Or maybe without explanation, that part of your life, it's going to be hard. It's going to fail. But, but is that the whole of who you are? Is, is, is that what you serve? Is that what you're devoted to? Is that where your reward will be? We're told that any of these particular aspects of our lives, all of them have potential for good. Pursue them. Work hard to fix any area of struggle. Hope for change, but recognize that some of your life is going to go well and some of it's not going to go well, and you don't have control over that. The thing is, can God, who knows the number of hairs in your head, take these various strands and show at the end his wisdom, his provision, and his grace? And what we're told is there's a picture from the beginning that says resounding yes. If your hope is in Christ, if you receive the love of God and seek to love him back, you will see at the end that when you bow before him with a recognition of his wisdom, his presence, his care, you don't now know what he's doing. We don't know when we as a church will meet next. We don't know what worship will be like afterwards. We don't, we don't know how the current problems will be fixed and the specific difficulties that you're facing. We're told that there's a redeemer. And then if we choose to believe that story now, we will see, even if we don't have the answers, that God is at work somehow in this. And his wisdom will be shown and our humility will be required. But the outcome of the whole of our lives, if our hope is in Christ, will be rejoicing and celebration. 
And that's why we need to know the redemptive story, because right now you have installments of unredemptive things happening. And we're told the witnesses of those who have trusted God, my life wasn't easy, it wasn't perfect, but my Lord does not fail to deliver on what he promises. God loves and is gracious with a pure and full love that overcomes darkness, casts out hate, and brings reconciliation. We're going to see more of that as the story of Joseph unfolds, that these stories do not give us hope in humanity, but they give us hope in the God who has given us these stories to show us what he's like. So let's open him. I'm going to pray for us. Our Father, we are here this morning, some of us having threads of our lives that we can rejoice in. Thank you. Thank you that your goodness comes even into this moment. Lord, some of us are here discouraged, overwhelmed with, with minor problems that nag us, some with major problems that won't go away. We recognize that. We don't have to provide quick and easy answers here. We have to recognize that you create a community where the, the rejoicing and the suffering can come together for the same meeting. We can seek the same things because we all need you, a redeemer. We all need forgiveness. We need patience and grace. Our lives are all too complicated and this world is overwhelmingly complicated. Lord, we are a people who gather to say we long for it to be repaired, but we don't know what we can do. But we know where to hope. We hope that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, as he will be. In that vision that tells us that those who hold steady, who trust him, who don't renounce their faith, but express it through obedience, will bow with reverence and joy that Jesus is far greater than we even comprehend at this moment. So let's give all glory to him now by faith and pray that you would do redemptive things in our lives, our particular lives this week, bring healing, bring hope, bring restoration, bring reconciliation. We pray that having gathered today, we would not waste it, but we would go into the world this week looking for grace to be revealed and trusting it's there, even if we don't see it. Lord, do that work in us, we pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>